0: Hello and welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. Pretty excited about my guest this week. Nick Biasini is head of outreach at Cisco Talos. Nick, let's start right there. What is Cisco Talos and what does the head of outreach there do?
1: Uh, So Cisco Talos, uh, we're the threat intelligence organization inside of Cisco. So the easiest way to think of us is if you have a Cisco security product, it blocks something. The reason it's blocking it is because of our group. Uh, That's basically what we do. As far as what I do as head of outreach, Uh, so I have a team of threat hunters. Uh, Our focus is on the breaking, most novel, interesting aspects of the threat landscape. Our focus is talking about stuff publicly. So most, if not all of the research we find ends up in a blog post, a white paper, a conference talk, something like that. We're always out there looking for both what criminals and state sponsor groups are doing uh, and staying on the cutting edge of whatever is most concerning on the threat landscape.
0: Is all your work public? I mean, everything you do is publicly published or are you, do you have private reports that you do only to a subset of paying customers? No, the,
1: the overwhelming majority of what we do is public facing. So our real goal is, is to do as much as we can and publish it publicly. So I'm not a huge fan of private reports personally. I like stuff being disclosed publicly so everyone has the same kind of playing field that they're playing against.
0: And that has kind of become a little bit of a problem in our industry, right? Where a lot of the really hardcore work that is done by the private sector guys who have access to the data and who have the visibility and the intelligence to look at it, they're now like they're monetizing it. In fairness to them, they're a vendor. They're there to monetize it. People have to get paid for their work and so on. The issue is that it only becomes available to a subset of folks and then data doesn't get shared properly across the board and we have an ecosystem of exposure. How do we fix that?
1: So one of the things I've seen some groups do is they kind of put a time limit on how long things remain private. That's, that's a really good approach. Like I have no qualms with people needing to make money. I mean, we're, we all work for vendors. These are all companies. They have to generate revenue. I have no issues with that. The problem I have is when a report stays private for, say, a year and then something major happens and they're like, oh, we had this in a private report a year ago. Like that information should not stay private for a year.
0: But what's the window? What's the sweet spot window in your mind? Is it three months? Is it one month? Is it six months? I mean, you have
1: to have some wiggle room there depending on on the the vendor and how much money they're trying to generate, that type of stuff. But at least after a a few months, like that, that Intel's not super fresh anymore. It is very, very valuable to make sure that everyone has access to the data, not just those with deep pockets. Right.
0: And in threat intelligence in general, data has a very short shelf life. That kind of the IOCs and the telemetry, that kind of thing has a very sharp shelf life anyway, just on the telemetry front, can you give a level set for the audience in terms of your visibility? You mentioned like a lot of what goes into protecting Cisco products Mm -hmm. comes out to your team. What are you, what are you using? Where are your data sources? Give me a sense of the scale of what you're seeing.
1: So we have so many different data sources. It's kind of daunting at times. not just a lot of data sources, but a lot of different disparate data sources. So a lot of people have, say, a lot of visibility in one area. So they have like a lot of endpoint data, which is great. We have that too. But we also have a ton of DNS data and a ton of of network data and a ton of, of web data and a ton of email data. So we have a very, very wide portfolio that kind of gives us visibility into a whole bunch of different buckets and the ability to kind of create that full chain, right? We're not just looking at endpoint data. We're able to see the endpoint, pull the emails, look at the network telemetry, and kind of develop that full picture of what's going on in a particular incident or with a particular campaign.
0: Uh, yeah, you guys have like a really interesting parts there. Like, uh, I think it was OpenDNS. Uh, you're constantly bringing in new startups through acquisitions. I imagine sometimes it might feel like
1: almost too much
0: data, right? It's like...
1: There's always new stuff popping up. Oh, we, there's never a week goes by where I'm like, oh, there's another data set we just added. Awesome. Something new to go dig in for me and my folks.
0: So Nick, you and I have been uh, around the block for a while. I remember meeting you at you know, past SAS conferences in a past life talking about nation state threats and really tracking advanced tracker activities. Mm -hmm. We're in the midst of, I don't know, a lot of noise and and, and muddle around cyber war, heading into the Ukraine-Russia conflict, heading into this Gaza-Israel conflict and new conflicts popping up around the world. Mainstream mainstream headlines, CNN, New York Times, mainstream headlines are all cyber war, cyber war, cyber war. How do you define cyber war from your perch and what like what what does what does it actually look like
1: so to me one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they conflate espionage with cyber war a lot of what we see during wartime conflicts is more like traditional espionage right that these campaigns are not things that happen overnight these are things that take a very long time lots of advanced planning you know, the like supply chain attacks and and very, very sophisticated espionage campaigns are not thought up overnight. From my perspective, cyber war is a lot more about destructive actions. So seeing things that cause impacts on the battlefield. That to me is what cyber war is, and we do see some of that. But what we're seeing still today is unfortunately bombs are a lot more effective than bites, right? It's more effective for them to do damage and credit to places like Ukraine, right? That they have been attacked digitally on their power infrastructure and they were able to, you know, be resilient, come back online and and keep the lights on. Bombs are much harder things to overcome than, than bites in a lot of these circumstances. And that's what we're seeing is still today, kinetic rules the battlefield. In the future, that might not be the case, but as of right now, it's still kinetic 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 there's not a lot of real cyber warfare going on right now
0: in my there's there's a, but there's also a lot of cyber related activities that are directly linked to some connected activities like, you know, taking out a satellite infrastructure in place yes. right before an attack, that kind of thing, you, we, we're, we're starting to see malware associated with those. It's not at scale, though, right? It's just pockets of a few things here and there you're, you're mentioning.
1: Well, like you said, like those examples, that's a huge amount of work to get the infrastructure in place to be able to launch that type of attack. Like you're building that for months and months and months, waiting for the opportunity to use it. Those types of things aren't going to be dropping time and time again. Those are going to be more the exception than the rule. That's something that they've potentially built months and months and months in advance. And we're just waiting for the opportunity to be able to leverage it.
0: Right. And a lot of the cyber activity we start to see related to international conflict is around disinformation as well. Right. Just using cyber to 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 kind of gain or, or, or gain the upper hand in the narrative. Can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing here specifically as it relates to the Israel-Gaza conflict?
1: Disinformation and misinformation is the real battlefield now. Uh, that's just a fact, that, that's where we're trying. And in, in the world we're living in today where there's lots of allies supporting lots of groups on many different sides, the battle for misinformation and disinformation is very, very important. Because if you can drive wedges or bring more allies to your side, that really increases both your chances and potentially as damaging to your adversary. We're really seeing this kind of run at full speed. And because there's multiple conflicts going on at the same time, we're really getting kind of a crash course in what this looks like. And it's a lot of convoluted signals, contract or contrasting opinions, people saying both sides of the same argument and pointing fingers at one another with lots of evidence to back it up. Now that question becomes, How reliable is the evidence? Where is the data coming from? How many sources has it come from? And in today's like really, really quick turnaround world, people aren't really taking the time to validate, make sure that this stuff is real. Where is it coming from? Is it all single sourced? Did it come from some weird publication that spun up in existence six months ago? Or is it coming from a WAPO or a Financial Times or some very, very large reputable news organization Unfortunately, today, all news isn't created equal.
0: And in this fog, everything, it becomes impossible for the, for the, the target, for the end users like you and I at the, on the back end of, say, a Twitter message or a message somewhere. It's impossible for us to like verify all of that in real time. And it's such a flood that it feels like this is a losing cause and this is the reality of what we'll be facing for a while. And
1: honestly, people are too focused on fake internet points, right? It's all about being viral and getting that stuff out more so than it is on, is this actually true?
0: Nick, I want to ask about attribution. Big topic that we've been talking about forever. But I want to know. I want to. I want to bring your attention to a trend that I noticed is that a lot of attribution of nation-state campaigns today is a lot more direct than it used to be five, six years ago. I mentioned the early sas uh, where where we met. It used to be a Russian-speaking actor or a Chinese-speaking actor or an actor with North Korean language characteristics. Today. Microsoft is saying, "Hey, this is Russia. This is SVR." There's a, a you know, not a vendor, p- private sector vendor, saying, "Hey, this is GRU. This is the Russian intelligence service." The U.S. government is going public, saying, "Hey, here's some IPs associated with China." I, everyone is calling names bluntly. There, there's no more of this. So the question to you is, have we gotten so much better at attribution that these public statements sh- should be trusted today?
1: So I think attributions good and can be important. Uh, I trust attribution coming from a government, probably implicitly more than coming from a vendor. Uh, I'm fine with attribution from a vendor, but I want to see the receipts. So talk to me about why you're making this attribution, just making an attribution and saying, Hey, this, this actor is associated with country X, Y or Z and providing absolutely no backing for saying that is where I have issue. Again, if you have the receipts, Say what you're going to say, put the evidence out there, assign a confidence to it and let people draw their own conclusions. But saying things definitively without any evidence, if you're not a government, is concerning to me because governments have access to human int and a lot of other things that they can't disclose. Vendors aren't held to that same standard. So there is every reason for them to say, here are the technical underpinnings for why we're saying this. Here's the connection between the code. Here's the connection between infrastructure overlap. Do something to show me why you're saying this.
0: What percentage of the public threat reports we see today fit that standard that you just described?
1: If I'm honest, it's not super high. So from our perspective, I won't let my folks say anything attribution wise if there isn't receipts. Like I always tell them, show me the receipts tell me why you're doing this. And that's what I would hope every vendor would hold their standard to.
0: But this comes to the crux of my question, right? Is that not many vendors are being held to that standard. The majority of what what pretend to be threat intel reports are actually marketing documents without IOCs or telemetry to help others find things, right? How should defenders, let's say my audience, in my audience, I got a bunch of CISOs and defenders and guys in the trenches trying to figure out you know, we through this noise of threat intelligence activity. How are we to take any of this seriously if the majority of vendors aren't showing receipts or aren't releasing IOCs and showing their work?
1: It's tough. I mean, honestly, you kind of have to look at their track record, right? Go back and look at the attribution they've done in the past. Have there been mistakes? Have they attributed to the wrong groups? Have there been, is there a lot of contradicting attribution out there? Those are the things to kind of focus on that- Part of the problem is, what's the consequence to doing bad attribution? I, there, there is none. There isn't any. Like you can, you're getting huge headlines for saying something that is potentially very newsworthy. But if you're wrong, there's no consequence to you being wrong. And that, that is part of the problem as well, is people feel emboldened to be able to say things that are a little bit excessive because there's no repercussion to, to making those outlandish claims Nobody's there. There's no consequence to you, uh, really, for saying that stuff.
0: So as a defender, it's up to me to figure out whether this guy has a track record. I feel like, I feel like the current status is just you put the defender behind the eight ball. You're, you're getting a lot of disattribution, name calling at the top. There's not a lot of showing your work and a lot of telemetry and a lot of IOCs being released. And, and, and even worse, like there's nothing for me to do to defend myself. Like there is nothing for me to say, hey, let me take this and go hunting privately and see if there's something on my network. And, and and a lot of that passes even from some big vendors. I mean, we're not talking about small guys trying to make a name for themselves. And I'll say it. I've seen Microsoft put out threat intel reports with IOCs that are only available for Microsoft customers. Like this kind of weird world of where IOCs are and how it's being kind of traded and the value of it seems To me, as an outsider, not in the best interest of of defenders, do you think that's a fair characterization?
1: That's tough, right? Every vendor has their own prerogatives and things for doing things. Like Our our goal is if we write about something, we're going to publish every IOC we can. Now, there are circumstances where specific things may prevent every single IOC from being published, but we're not going to publish a blog that doesn't have significant IOC underpinning or technical underpinning because you said it. What defenders want to be able to do is go pivot. How do I go find if I was impacted by this? How do I make sure that the protections I have in place catch this stuff? And by having a technical analysis of the malware, by having the IOCs associated with it, it really gives defenders that opportunity. And as you said, not all vendors really adhere to that standard.
0: I feel like we're even kind of going backwards in time, Like, right? It feels like like Microsoft Advisory uh, bulletins with their patches used to have this you know, good blocks of data that helped me determine what is this vulnerability, is this does this affect my infrastructure? Today, all that stuff has been stripped out completely, and you just get this. This has been exploited in the wild. Or, or Apple has information that this iOS patch, that, this iOS. Has, vulnerability may have been exploited in the wild. This kind of weird kind of hedging of language. And I, as an iPhone user, I'm saying, okay, what can I do to defend myself? There really isn't anything I can do to defend myself. So it's just kind of throwing words at the wind and defenders are just like waving their arms around. Is that tractable? Is that something
1: we can fix? Well, so a lot of the problem too, is is we're moving away from the basics as well. Like everybody is always chasing the new tech, the new thing that they can roll out to help protect them. But in honesty. The basics are the things that are going to save you, because when a new O-Day rolls out and somebody pops everybody, you having proper network segmentation and proper access control and all these things in place is going to be the thing that saves you. Not that you have the latest and greatest piece of software that's out there. It really is. It's kind of too two things, right? We're, we're moving away from that and we're infatuated with technology instead of looking at the things that we can do to really secure environments the way that we intended to 25, 30 years ago.
0: You mentioned OD. We're, we're in the midst of what I consider an OD surge over the last, I would say, two years, maybe even three years, but just last year and this year, this dramatic surge in discovery of ODs uh, actually being exploited in the wild. The question is, are we uh, why are we finding so many more O-days? Are we just better at searching or there been more O-day usage from uh, adversaries? What's, where do you think we stand? I, I think it's
1: a couple of factors. One is there are more zero-day researchers out there than there have ever been. And this has become a huge, huge, huge industry that may not have been nearly this big a decade ago. That, that's a huge part of it. Another part is, we write huge amounts of software all the time. And software is getting incredibly complex and complicated and more and more modules moving in and out. And it is always a a mechanism of we need new features and we need them fast. And when you're moving at a fast pace and you're writing lots of code, their mistakes are going to get made and you're going to find new vulnerabilities. So it's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. There's more people looking And there's also more software and ever more software coming out at an increased, it almost seems like increased cadence pace, right? The releases are coming faster and more often than they used to previously.
0: Yeah, and on the ODE front, we're starting to see newer targets start to emerge, just like big targets, uh, network devices, routers. I mean, your your own companies had issues with ODE and so on here, but not only, but I mean, across the board, big five, a big IP. As you look through this list, the Cisco Careful List, known exploitable vulnerabilities list, you're starting to see a significant trend where these things are starting to be popped by nation state type actors?
1: Yeah, the, the, the amount of activity we're seeing against networking devices and appliances in general is alarming. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of focus, not just from state sponsored groups, but from criminal groups as well. They are really, really keenly focused on these devices. And I mean, honestly, it makes sense. They're very, very difficult to defend. They're not commonly looked at. They're just kind of a set it and forget it leave it running in the background type of an approach Low hanging fruit right yes exactly and they have huge amounts of access as well right if you manage to pop a networking device you're now sitting in the middle of the network so you have all kinds of visibility into what network traffic is traversing ways to get footholds to launch attacks in, in further environments we see it in telcos a lot they're really focused on telcos and networking devices Because it's a huge amount of visibility across a huge amount of, of locations in one shot. Basically
0: feels also like a very dark place for researchers. Like researchers are not there picking apart that kind of telemetry. And what I'm hearing, it's also very, very difficult to get data out of device vendors around like firmware things being attacked and like people signing, and demanding NDAs for things. It, It feels like from a threat research perspective, that's a ripe area. Uh, for research. It's heavily targeted, but defenders, again, are in the dark, and researchers as well have limited access to even look at these things.
1: It's tough, too, because most of these things are purpose-built hardware, right? It's not like it has the capability to all of a sudden be like, let's run this massive security stack on top of here on this piece of hardware that was purpose-built to be able to push networking traffic through at as high a rate as possible. There's a lot of challenges there. I mean, it, it is a soft spot, no doubt. One thing I will say please, please, please do not turn web interfaces onto things open to the internet unless you highly restrict it. ACL the hell out of it because too often we're seeing way too many people expose like management interfaces to the open internet. And that's just, it's a recipe for disaster.
0: And by the same token, please, please, please don't ship default software with stuff connected to the internet and allow un- unauthenticated access to things. I mean, you, 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 pin it on, you pin it on people deploying this stuff, this stuff ships out of the box connected to the internet in many cases. And, and the responsibility should be on the vendor to do this secure by default, secure by design thing we we're talking about,
1: right? That is absolutely true as well. Making sure that by default it's not there and letting users know that they're doing it. And often there, there will even be prompts saying, are you sure you want to do this? And people still will click through that. That stuff has got to stop.
0: We're also seeing just on the trend, just to pinpoint some trends I wanted to ping you about was this APT starting to pop up in some really interesting new places, strange places, maybe in my mind, but new places in Africa, throughout Africa, I starting to see a lot of buzz about some really interesting threat actor groups in certain places. Africa, I mentioned, down Latin America, throughout Latin America, and then more recently in Guyana, which is an English-speaking former British colony. I'm from Guyana. And I feel I see reports of a Chinese APT popping up in a country like Guyana, it makes me open my eyes. What do you make of this? Just, is it now that we're just starting to look there? It's always been there. We're now starting to look or are you starting to see adversaries do something specific
1: there? Well, I think it's a combination of things, right? The, the kind of the attack surface in those countries has exploded over the last five or 10 years, right? There's so much more infrastructure in these places that are that's attackable than was there previously and it again you know countries are always going to do espionage but if cyber espionage is an option they're going to go cyber espionage a hundred times out of a hundred it's cheap it's effective it allows them to get a huge amount of visibility it's fast as opposed to having to build all these other things so you're really starting to see more and more visibility in that space on the flip side of that we've also seen kind of the democratization of access to this type of capability right we Private sector offensive actors have exploded. There's huge marketplaces for exploits, for capabilities. So the amount of countries and states that have these capabilities has absolutely blown out exponentially over the last five or 10 years. And now you have a ton more players in the space. Previously, you know, it was kind of kept to a smaller group of people, countries that had deep pockets and had spent decades building these capabilities. Now, if anybody has the money, they can go out and buy capabilities that previously would have only been held by a small handful of states.
0: You mentioned private sector offensive actors. Can you just like linger there for a second? How do you how do you define a private soft sector offensive actors? And you, are you talking about? folks like NSO Group, Kandiru, and a lot of these mercenary groups that we're starting to hear about, private sector groups selling hacking services or exploits and so on to interesting new people, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So private sector offensive actors, it kind of originally sprung out of the idea of commercial spyware or mercenary spyware, but then realizing it's actually a lot bigger than that. The mercenary landscape is huge. Like a lot of focus is played to spyware, but hack for hire is an exploding business, There is tons and tons of exploit development and exploits available for purchase. Those things and those private sector offerings have really kind of shaken things up because now you have all these countries all over the world that, you know, for a state, a couple million dollars is nothing, but that gives them a capability to do some very, very sophisticated things. And in the case of, of mercenary spyware or commercial spyware, compromise basically anyone who has a phone which is incredibly concerning.
0: The U.S. government has responded to this through using sanctions, uh, the threat of sanctions and putting people on lists and so on. But that only applies to a handful of uh, uh, vendors. And, you know, NSO Group in Israel is taking, being like the poster child for this, along with Kandiru and the Predator folks. However, I'm starting to hear, or I'm starting to see public reports and hear a lot of buzz about a lot of these mercenary hacking groups like you described right here in the U.S., In the West, in parts of Europe, this is not like hidden in Macedonia or hidden in Cyprus anymore. Can you talk a little bit about how much of this is actually happening on the ground and how much of it is in the open? And is the U.S. government sanctions approach even applicable against what we're actually talking about here beyond the spyware world?
1: So it's tough, right? Because you have to do something. But on the same side, you have to acknowledge the fact that these capabilities do have a purpose, right? There is a, a time and a place for these capabilities to exist. The problem is, is how do you regulate on a global stage where not everybody is playing by the same rules? So the U.S. government and governments have to do something because there are far too many activists, dissidents, journalists, and human rights abuse going on in this landscape for them not to do something. The, the challenge is, do you go after the companies that are doing the commercial spyware? Do you go after the companies that are doing exploit development and exploit sales? Do you go after the the hack for hire? Do you go after the people who are paying for the services? There's so many different avenues. And the biggest challenge is we need everyone in the world to kind of get together and realize a path forward. Because if you don't get global agreement on this, then it's fine. All you're doing is restricting, say, the United States companies from being able to purchase this. But if you go into some other regions of the world, they have no issue being able to make these same purchases because their governments don't adhere to the same uh, level of of control around these types of tools. So it's, it's a very, very tough problem to crack. We're, we're actively working to try and do as much as we can from our perspective. A lot of it is exposing what's going on. There's not, you talked about the lack of sharing. This is an area where there is zero sharing. I mean, it is, it's like a desert when it comes to indicators, real indicators around, mercenary spyware and PSOA activity, it just it doesn't exist. And that's something that we're desperately trying to change.
0: There's some nuance to the conversation. I think you mentioned it there, too, because I I read some reporting out of Israel that the U.S. that the Israeli government is actually turned to the NSO group for help locating hostages, uh, uh, compromising. Or perhaps compromising cell phones on hostages to determine location. There's legitimate use cases for this, for law enforcement, mm-hmm. for this kind of uh, uh, intelligence activity. How do we weigh and balance the nuance there when, you know, there's a legitimate use case, but on the flip side, we have all the civil society being targeted and it kind of becoming a wild west, like you described, how do we balance the need
1: for? It's, it's a really tough, I mean, honestly, it, it kind of has to be like, what is your track record? okay, you've used this technology, you purchased that technology, what did you do with it? Oh, you said you were doing it for purposes of, of rooting out terrorism or processing criminals, but oddly, there's been five activists and dissidents in your country who have recently been found to have this on their systems. Like the, the proof is in the way that you use it. So it's, it's a very difficult mechanism. And because there's no continuity on what the rules are for how these companies engage, who they can engage with, how they can engage, it becomes very difficult because they could go to the EU and do one thing. They could go to the Middle East and do a different thing. They could go to Asia and do something else. They could go to South America and do something else because all of these countries all have different rules and regulations associated with not just how they sell, but how they set up and operate. Where can they operate out of? What are the types of controls or export controls do they have? There's just no consistency, unfortunately.
0: Uh, just before we wrap up, we're running out of time. I wanted to flip back to the original question uh, of threat intelligence and the value of threat intelligence. We talked about the diminishing returns and the shelf life of IOCs and so on. Okay, help, help a defender, help a CISO understand how can good threat intelligence fit into a mature security program? And what is good threat intelligence? like? How, do you, how would you define a good threat intelligence product?
1: So the first and foremost thing you said a keyword there mature if you are not a very mature security organization i don't think you're necessarily in a place where you can make huge gains using threat intelligence now what does good threat intelligence look like to me good threat intelligence is based on what your threat profile is if you are a defense contractor you need really good threat intel on what's going on from the various state sponsored groups that are out there If you manufacture toys, you probably don't. But what you do need to do is have a really clear understanding of what ransomware cartels look like, what these these groups are doing, how they operate, and you need intelligence to defend yourself. So it's kind of hard to say a one-size-fits-all approach to threat intelligence, because it does really depend on what your risk profile is and what the threats are that you're kind of facing. But having the intel on the groups that you're concerned about indicators associated with those groups and ways to actually leverage it in your own environment are the three things that really lead to a strong threat intelligence program
0: the problem is that that's like you mentioned if you're not a mature security program threat intelligence might not even you might not even be ready to absorb threat intelligence and use it in a meaningful way the reality is that not many programs are modern i mean look at Okta. look at look at the look at the victims falling victims to these ransomware victims these are big time security companies with CISOs and big time security programs that we consider them modern. They're all getting popped here, there and everywhere. So the question to you is, I don't know. I don't know how to ask the question. It feels like we're in the midst of a lost cause where we're just kind of all flitting around trying to defend things and there's no real structure to being secure. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it's it's tough out there. I mean, it, you're, you're dealing, one of the things that you're dealing with too is the landscape is shifting, right? 10 years ago, everybody talked about social engineering. Oh, social engineering is going to be the next big thing. And then nothing ever happened. And then suddenly it's everywhere. And it is just the bane of most corporations existence is people want to help. And you don't even need to have the most technically, you know, you don't have to be this incredibly technologically sophisticated person. You just have to be able to talk to people and get them to do things that you want them to do. And you can inflict massive amounts of damage. You saw all the stuff out of the com, and them kind of starting to work with ransomware groups. That is incredibly concerning because their big MO is like sim swapping and social engineering. It's not you know, figuring out how to pop exploits and, and getting users to click emails. That's just not their MO. So the landscape is changing. And I feel like right now, You need to be agile you need to be ready to jump into those new areas what's your social engineering program look like what type of training are you doing for your employees how are you defending against sim swapping what are you doing to take on the really cutting edge threats what are you doing on mfa abuse how are you handling those types of things adversaries aren't going to be popping boxes they're going to be logging in with valid credentials that's what adversaries do now. And trying to defend against that is inherently far more difficult.
0: I leave it right there. Nick Biasini, Head of Outreach at Cisco Talos. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me.